It is an amazing thing that God has done for us. There is a place that we should come to every time that we take communion where we are wrecked, undone by the fresh revelation of what he has done for us. Amen, church? Hallelujah. I think we need to... Uh, pray together about something this morning, church. Um, as most of you know, I had a, a series of prophetic visions about um, the United States of America over recent months. And a couple of days ago, the announcement, well, I think it was yesterday, the announcement was made that, um, that President Donald Trump has come down with COVID-19, as has Melania Trump, his wife, and uh, several other members of his family and people that work closely with him. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it doesn't matter which side of uh, politics you may sit in this particular case, but when a, um, a senior advisor to the Democrat Party in the United States of America puts out a tweet that says, I hope he dies... I want you to understand that the reason that people, that God gives people prophetic visions about situations like this is because he wants his church to rise and begin declaring and decreeing the kingdom. I understand perfectly well that the kingdom of God can grow just as quickly under the Democrats as it can under the Republicans because I see what has happened in China when they try to wipe out the church. However, when we are called into a place of authority as an ecclesia, it is our responsibility to stand against the spirit of hatred being unleashed against a duly elected president of the United States of America. How would you feel if Scott Morrison came down with this thing and people of whatever political persuasion started saying, I hope he dies? Do you see the level of satanic witchcraft and hatred being unleashed? across the face of the earth in our lifetime. Do you see it, church? Can we rise and I'm going to pray? Lord, we just thank you. Lord, in our authority, I rebuke the spirit of hatred that is trying to consume the United States of America at the moment. I rebuke this spirit of hatred in the name of Jesus. I declare that your people, Lord, across the United States of America begin to rise in their God-given authority to push back the kingdom of darkness and see the light of your glory fall upon that nation. And as we pray these things, Lord, I pray that that same pushing back of darkness, that same invasion of the kingdom of light would take place in our nation of Australia. We pray, Father God, I pray, declare and decree that Donald Trump is, is made well, that his family is made well. I declare and decree in the name of Jesus that you will have your way in this election. I pray, Father God, for the destiny of the United States of America to be a kingdom forerunner, Lord. I pray, Father God, you would awaken your church. In the name of Jesus, can we say amen, church? Amen. 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 Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for the victory, Lord. We thank you for what you're doing, Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I want to tell you, I'll tell you what, in the midst of this uh, attack of the enemy across uh, the church in the West, I see, I hear it in, in your amens this morning, that the bride of Jesus Christ is awakening to her destiny. <laughs> Hallelujah. Can't wait for the hate mail on that prayer. <laughs> Woo! Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> All right. There's a couple of 
Uh, very anointed announcements that I have to make before <laughs> I launch into preaching this morning. The uh, first one is that uh, due to the public holiday, we're not going to have an intercession prayer meeting tomorrow night. We've been going week, 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 and we're going to keep going after tomorrow night. But just for tomorrow night, there's no intercession. And I want, um, I want all of you to be focused on what we're launching this week, which is our new life groups. Now, um, a part of this has been um, those of you who have said, yes, I want to be part of a life group, you've been getting emails, and those emails have asked you to go to a certain uh, uh, place on the web and and um, get your details to log into this new system that we're putting together. And I know that some people have had difficulty with that. So there's going to be a team of five of us at the end of the service today, and we're going to help you uh, get logged into this system for the life groups. But I want you to see this as part of a slightly bigger picture. Our church consists of around, um, I don't know, 75, 80 full-time adult members and probably 20 or 30 kids if everybody turns up at the same time. Plus, we've got other people that come regularly that are not yet members. Now, um, part of the life group system is it's part of a bigger system. And um, I was amazed to discover in setting up what is going to be our new system, um, that we have a total of 47 uh, pastors, leaders, volunteers, worship team members, people hosting home groups, people leading life groups, people being part of life groups. There's 47 of you that regularly sow your time into different areas of our church life. And so when those, so you guys that are signing up for the life groups, you're the forerunners <laughs> in the sense that when you sign up for the life group, you're also being given access to a larger system that we're rolling out where it's going to be very easy for you to understand what you're rostered on for, when you're rostered for it, how you can respond to the request to be rostered, all those sorts of things. So, um, you know, the church doesn't run on technology. It runs on the anointing. But I tell you what, if you can use technology to improve and make a little bit uh, smoother the operation of the place, then it's a great help. This is not something that we're doing overnight. We're rolling it out, rolling it out, rolling it out, getting people adjusted to all the new things entailed. Also, if you have not yet signed up for a life group and you would like to be in a life group, I'm preaching today on the book of Acts, and I'm going to be preaching on the book of Acts for probably the next year once a month. And our life groups are going to be praying into and receiving from the Word um, about the book of Acts and how the book of Acts and the concept of ecclesia belong together so that we can become a functioning body of Christ who tears down the things of the enemy that he has installed across our nation. Do you understand the authority that you've been given? About four of you do. This is why I'm doing this. <laughs> I, I, I take that back. You do understand you've been called into a place of authority. There's a difference between understanding you've been called into that place of authority and actually exercising it in what you pray, in what you declare, in what you decree. So we see the life groups as being like a cultural transformation in our church so that more and more and more people are actively engaged in what we are called to as a church. Do you know... Um, we're launching nine life groups this week. I was astounded. There's nine of them. And something like 54 people have said, I want to be part of this. If you're not yet uh, signed up and you'd like to be, um, I want you to come and see me after the service. If you can't do it then, send me a text, email me, whatever you need to do. And we'll make sure that you're placed in a group of active believers who are pursuing the things of God. Amen. So if you, uh, if you received one of those emails or you don't know how to log into our new little thing with the groups and everything, just come and see me after the service and we're going to get you set up and activated, okay? All right. So today we're launching into Presence, Power and Purpose, Living the Book of Acts. And I believe that what God is going to do among us over the next however many months um, that it takes for us to work our way through the book of Acts, 
I believe is God is unrolling a profound transformation in us as individuals, but us as a corporate body of believers called into a place of authority. And you're going to see how all these things work together. The concept of ecclesia, the book of Acts, what happened in the book of Acts, why it speaks to us today. So um, I want to start off with a couple of scriptures just before uh, the book of Acts. And then we're going to see how these things fit together. And then we're going to see what God wants to do with it all. So in Matthew 16, verses 18 to 19, we spoke about this in the context of Ecclesia. When Jesus is standing at the gates of Hades, or the place they call the gates of Hades at, at Caesarea Philippi, and he's, he's talking to Peter and he's asking the disciples, who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In Matthew 16, starting at verse 18, Jesus says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, the rock of revelation that Jesus is the Christ, I will build my church slash ecclesia, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I want you to understand these three scriptures I'm starting uh, with. And this one, the, the relevance of this one is that Matthew 16, 18 to 9, 19, sorry, is the release of authority for the church's commission. Can you see that? That whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. It's the release of authority for the church's commission. What's the church's commission? I'm glad you asked. Matthew 24, 18 to 20 uh, says this. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Somebody say all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This second scripture is the release of the scope of their commission. So we had authority in Matthew 16, 18 to 19. Now we've got the scope of the commission. Make disciples of all the nations. And then we come to, Matthew, to uh, Acts 1 verse 8 where it says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Acts 1 verse 8 is the release of power to complete the commission. So you have authority for a commission. Then you have the scope of the commission. And then next you have the release of the power. And the reason that I've started with these scriptures is that the fulfillment of the Great Commission can only be accomplished with supernatural power. We are not an organization. We are the body of Christ linked together by the power of the Holy Spirit and the blood of Jesus. You are part of a spiritual body. It is a spiritual commission that has an overflow into the material world. And in fact, how all these things fit together has already been modeled for us. We've been given the instruction manual. And you're going to see in the coming weeks and months that the book of Acts is uh, the instruction manual for how God plans for that commission to be made a reality. Our problem is that the church, after about the first, first 30 or 40 years, the church began to let go of what God's idea for the whole thing was. And uh, I was particularly interested to see that there have been something like 1,500 commentaries written on the book of Acts. Does everybody know what a commentary is? A commentary is written by a theologian who ex expands and expounds upon the, the scripture that he's writing the commentary on. There's been nearly 1,500 of these written, and the vast majority of them, at least 95% of those commentaries all say uh, they have all been written from a cessationist point of view. 
the cessationist point of view takes the position that miracles, signs, wonders, the gifts of the Spirit, all of these things died out after the first generation of the church. And by the way, apostles and prophets are not accepted either. You think about it, 1,500 commentaries on the most, one of the most powerful books in the Bible and all of them say, oh yeah, this will happen, but you can't have it now. Do you see what we're up against? Do you see what needs to be rewritten in our hearts? Do you see how our minds need to be renewed? How we need to be transformed and taken from a place of glory to the next level of glory. I'm going to share a couple of testimonies with you today that, that come straight out of the book of Acts. So how do we summarize it? We will see that over the 30, did, every, did everybody know that the book of Acts actually covers 30 years? Sometimes we read the books of the Bible and we think, oh yeah, this is like five years or six years. This is 30 years that this all rolled out. Uh, the key, we will see that over the 30-year period that the book of Acts covers, the keys of the kingdom that Jesus promised his ecclesia in Matthew 16 are demonstrated in one book. And we will see the incredible spread of the gospel in one generation. We will see binding and loosing. We will see miracles. We will see healings. We will see signs and wonders. We will see deliverances, strongholds and principalities brought down, angelic visitations, prophets and apostles coming together to fast and pray before releasing teams to take cities. We will see suffering. We will see persecution. And we'll see a supernatural explosion of the ecclesia right across what is now the Middle East. All in one book of the Bible. <laughs> now I'm just thinking if it takes a year to do the book of Acts and there's 66 books in the Bible, we could be here for a while. <laughs> and you see, it starts with the presence of God. Everything to do with the kingdom and the expansion of the kingdom starts with his presence. You're going to see that his presence releases the power of the Holy Spirit and that power is for a specific purpose and you are all part of that specific purpose. Your individual destiny, your individual calling, your individual anointing, everything about you, God already knows about and he's, he asks you to submit those individual destinies and callings to a greater picture or vision that he has for the transformation of the earth. If you get to the place where you think your ministry, your anointing, your gifting, your talent is about you, you are making the biggest mistake you can make in the kingdom because it is not about you, it is about the kingdom and you playing, taking your place to see the kingdom rolled out across the face of the earth and dominion taken back from the enemy. The book of Acts starts with God, God's presence, then he manifests his power, and those two things give his people their purpose, and then they begin to act on the purpose that they've been given. And the key scripture to all of this is to be found in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8. If you want to know the book of Acts, what's the book of Acts about? Acts 1, verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's the book of Acts summed up. There's a lot more to it, but you see in that one scripture, that one scripture is like the forerunner of everything that takes place afterwards in the book. At the time of Pentecost, remember I was saying it's all about God's presence. The presence of God had been gone from the people, from amongst God's people for hundreds of years. We talked about this last week. Instead, they had this massive temple where you could fit 100,000 people into the outer courts, but they had no presence. They didn't have the Shekinah glory of God. They didn't have the spirit of prophecy. They, they did not have what God intended for them to have. 
They had Pharisees. They had Sadducees. They had councils. They had priests. They had elders. They had scribes. And they were all busy administrating extension upon extension to a covenant without the presence of God. And Jesus came to turn all of that on its head. And you could look at a a great majority of the church around the world and say, it's just like that. We've got administrators, we've got Pharisees, we've got Sadducees, we've got councils, we've got priests, we've got archbishops, we've got bishops, we've got elders, we've got scribes. They're all saying, do this and do that. God's saying, come to me and I will fill you with my Holy Spirit. And out of that infilling, you're going to live a life that's pleasing to me that fulfills the commission and call I placed upon you. The presence of God is absolutely essential to any kingdom commission. Do you remember in the book of Exodus when Moses is bringing all these people, they come to Mount Sinai and they all screw up. They build this golden cloth. They they start stepping into sexual sin. People are killed by the presence of God because of their sin and their unbelief and all the rest of it. And Moses goes back up on the mountain and he begins interceding with the Lord and he says to God this one thing, if you do not go with us, we don't want to go. Do you understand this? If we go without the presence of God, all we're doing is human. When we go with the presence, we step into the supernatural. Moses didn't want to lead them into their destiny unless the presence of God actually accompanied them. Exodus 33, 15. Then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? And God turns around and says, yes, I'm going to go with you. You know, before they got to their promised land, the nations in the land that they had been promised were already in fear of them. Why? Because they could see the presence of God upon this nation. They heard about the impossible battles that they won. They knew that if they looked out across the desert as Israel approached, there was the cloud of his presence by day. There was the pillar of fire by night. The Israelites are coming. The Israelites are coming. We're afraid. Does the world say that about the church? No. We need the presence. And so you step forward all these hundreds of years to the birth of the church and Jesus was about to release to the church what they needed so that they could become who God had destined them to be. And their commission is no different to ours. In John 16, 7, in preparation for this, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Jesus sent us the Holy Spirit to baptize us and give us a baptism of fire so that we might do what he's called us to do. Guys, this is Pentecostal Christianity 101. Right? And you've heard it before. But every time I preach it, it, it hits me again in my heart. God, what are we doing and why are we doing it? Jesus was about to change everything. And so when he gathered the disciples together for the last time, and here's the beginning of the book of Acts, Acts 1, 4 to 8. Being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Let me make it clear to anybody who's not clear about this. Perhaps you don't come from a Pentecostal background. There are two separate baptisms you need to step into. The first one is the baptism of repentance where you, where you go under the water and come out. And you do that identifying with what Jesus did when, it, when Jesus prophetically was submerged underwater. Bur- death, burial, and resurrection. That's water baptism. The second baptism you need is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a separate baptism. It's right there in Scripture. John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. They'd already been baptized with water. They'd already been down to the Jordan. They'd stepped into John's baptism. Now Jesus is saying, I've got something different for you, a separate thing for you. You shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Why did they need the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Because of the next verse. They came to him and asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus had just gone through three years. These are the 11 apostles that he's speaking to. They'd been with him for three years. They had seen, they had heard him talk about, take up your cross and follow me. They had seen the literal fulfillment of it when he was crucified, when he went down into that grave, when after three days he was resurrected. They just spent about 40 days with him and they still don't get it that it's not about a physical kingdom. This is why we need the baptism of the Holy Spirit to take us from here up to there where we are seated in heavenly places and begin to see our lives, see our destiny, see this world as Jesus sees it. He said to them, it's not for you to know times or season which the Father has put in his own authority. They didn't really understand what they were getting themselves into. So I'm going to break Acts 1, 8 down, because you're going to see a couple of things that you possibly didn't see before. The first one is where he says, you shall receive power. You shall receive. Who was you? <laughs> but in, in that particular scripture, he's speaking to a specific group of people. The specific group of people he is speaking to at that point are his 11 apostles. And by the time they gather in the upper room, those gathered had numbered up to 120. So it's not just the apostles in the upper room. There's 120 people there gathered. And all of them were Jewish. All of them. And then he says, okay, but you shall receive power. Power, the Greek word is dynamis, which is a word from which we get the English word dynamite explosive power and this power comes from the Holy Spirit this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit this is what John the Baptist prophesied in Matthew 3.11 I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance but he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire how many of you have been through a baptism of fire in your life <laughs> This power, which stems from the baptism in the Holy Spirit, has a purpose. And the purpose is right there in that verse. You shall be my witnesses. Ask yourself this question. What does the word witness conjure up in your imagination? Witness. A witness testifies, right? Everyone familiar with a witness in a court of law? A witness gives testimony. But there's a dimension to this that we need to get hold of. In Revelation 12.11, it says this about the testimony of the overcomer. Revelation 12.11. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Why is this bit about not loving their lives to the death in that scripture, let's go back to Acts 1.8. You shall be my witnesses. The Greek word is martis, M-A-R-T-Y-S. Now go with me quickly to Acts 22.20. And this is the Apostle Paul speaking. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. That word martyr... In Greek, in Acts 22.20, when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, that word martyr is exactly the same word as witness in Acts 1.8. You shall be my martyr. You shall be my martyr. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's gone quiet. 
Martha has an exclusively Christian origin and meaning. Christian martyrdom is always in the context of refusing to deny your testimony. That's what martyrdom is about. It never has the context attached to it of killing others because they won't submit and adopt your religion. In Islam, though the same term is used, martyrs, you would have, you would have heard it over the last few years of terrorist bombings where, where uh, you see that, that people who uh, blow themselves up are regarded as martyrs. In Islam, though the same term is used, it does not mean the same thing. In Islam, a martyr is someone who dies while engaged in jihad or holy war. It's the only guaranteed way into paradise in Islam. We're never called to terrorize people. We're never called to blow people up as Christians. We are called never to deny our testimony on pain of death. And no matter what is thrown your way, you carry this testimony of what God has done in you. And so Jesus calls out this group of people and says, you're going to be my witnesses. And the witness that you carry is going to be so powerful that no torture can overcome it. And right from the start of the church or ecclesia until now, Christians have been persecuted for their faith. Faith costs you something. Your faith costs you something. I pray, God, none of us are ever martyred. I pray, God, that if any of us ever are, we will stand faithful to our testimony. And do you know that when the baptism of the Holy Spirit is released in your life, there is a supercharging of conviction of what your testimony means to you. It takes on an entirely different dimension. You are no longer serving a religious purpose. You are serving the living God who has promised to overflow your life with his presence. So these 120 disciples gathered in obedience to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, knowing that the result would be that they become witnesses and possibly even martyrs. Where were these witnesses going to witness? We're still in Acts 1 verse 8. I promise you I'm not going to take this long over every scripture in the book of Acts. We'll be here for 66 years. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Where were these witnesses going to witness? Who were they going to witness to? What did Jesus say? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. What did the disciples just ask him? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? All of a sudden, something, an extra dimension is released to them. Jerusalem, of course, was the Jewish capital. Judea is the surrounding uh, region. Two separate kingdoms, Israel and, 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 uh, and Judah. But Judea was the, the, the surrounding region to Jerusalem. And up to this point, the disciples, in their limited understanding before the baptism of the Holy Spirit, would have been reasonably understanding and accepting of what Jesus had in mind. Because he's the Messiah. They already have that revelation. And they're Jewish. He's our king. The idea of being witnesses or martyrs within Jerusalem and Judea is at least within the scope of their imagination. Okay, Jesus has asked me to go to Jerusalem. We're going to hang out in this upper room together. We're going to wait for the promise. Remember, do you remember that guy, John the Baptist? He spoke about it. We're going to get baptized, the Holy Spirit, and we're fire. And now Jesus says we're going to be our witnesses. And they can, it's within the scope of their imagination that Jerusalem and Judea, the surrounding region, that's okay. That's all Jewish too. But then it gets a bit tricky because he goes, Samaria. And Samaritans were the sworn enemies of the Jews. And let me be blunt about this. They were regarded as half-breed apostate mongrels. It's a little bit of racism for you. Half-breed apostate mongrels. 
is how Jews thought of Samaritans. And now Jesus is saying to them, oh, you're going to witness on pain of death to these guys. There were only a couple of examples in the Gospels of Jesus ministering to a Samaritan or a Gentile. So this was stepping on religious toes. This was stepping on the understanding that they had. This was God breaking out of the religious box that even his apostles had put him in. And you'll see that there was a lot of, you'll see later on as we work through the book of Acts that there was a lot of controversy around this concept. And it's worth noting that it's not until persecution hits the church that the outreach of the church to Samaritans came. Because persecution came to the church and Philip ends up in Samaria and uh, revival breaks out in Samaria. But it doesn't just stop at Samaritans. Because Jesus said the ends of the earth, the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? Put your hand up. We're all Gentiles. If it wasn't for their obedience, you wouldn't be sitting in church this morning. And it's not until Acts chapter 10 that Peter has a vision on the rooftop that leads to the conversion of Cornelius and his entire household and the gospel actually reaches the Gentiles. It's not until Acts chapter 11 that the first missionaries went out to Antioch on the first missionary journey. That's 15 years after Pentecost. This is a cultural transformation that took 15 years to come to pass. But we've, we've got the hindsight, Right? We know that we're not just called to evangelize Australians <laughs> or New Zealanders. Let's put them in the Samaritans category. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. We have so many nationalities in this church. Nobody could possibly take offense. I could have chosen any one of you. <laughs> the ends of the earth. We have the ends of the earth gathered here in church this morning. If I got you all to stand up and call out the nation of your, uh, your ancestral heritage, we would have a huge proportion of the earth covered. Samoa, Tonga, Nigeria, uh, Ghana, Australia, United States of America, Holland, Lebanon, Italy. <laughs> Asia. <laughs> South America. Nepal. Nepal. And a few token Aussies <laughs> who all came from somewhere else anyway, including the Aboriginals. <laughs> uh, where was I? <laughs> <So> <laughs> <laughs> We're at the ends of the earth. So they gathered in the upper room and they waited. They waited. Can you imagine like this? Uh, I believe our count for this morning, there's 75 people in this auditorium this morning. So I would imagine that the upper room, you know, people think of the upper room like a little room, like maybe the end room upstairs. Um. But there was 120 people gathered, and they were there for 10 days. Like, they were sending out the pizza and all sorts of stuff, right? Like, <laughs> unless they were all fasting and praying for 10 days. Like, like they, were, they were there gathered with one accord. doesn't mean they were in perfect unity, but they all had one purpose. They had an accord over them, written over them, that they were going to receive what Jesus had promised they would receive. And that 10 days of waiting in the upper room empowered 30 years of ministry. It doesn't mean they never came together again to wait together. But I want to tell you, there's something about waiting upon the Lord together. Who knows what they were doing up there? Some of them would have been preaching. Some of them would have been interceding. Some of them would have been searching Scripture. There would have been a whole bunch of different things going on. But they had this one purpose, this one overruling purpose. We must have the presence of God to do what the Messiah has asked us to do. 
So what happened? In Acts 2, the presence of God was restored to his people under a new covenant where his presence was no longer promised just to be over them, no longer promised just to be with them. It is now within them. And now from that presence is released power. Lighting them up with the fire of God so that even as they looked at each other, they could see the tongues of supernatural fire upon each person. And in that power lay the key to their impossible purpose to make disciples of all nations. In Acts 2, verses 1 to 4, we read the account of what happened. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues." This is why I say to you that the gift of tongues is essential to the believer because I believe it is an evidence that you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit because it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and it doesn't say some of them began to speak with other tongues. It just said they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. When was the last time the Spirit gave you utterance? In English, even. When was the last time you came aside and said, God, I'm coming to you on behalf of my family. I'm coming to you on behalf of our church. I'm coming to you on behalf of this community that our church is gathered in, our city, our nation. You know, Jesus said, my house, my oikos, those that are gathered together in my name will be a house of prayer for all nations. Nobody in this place should be surprised that I get up and begin interceding for Donald Trump. This is a house of prayer for all nations. And at different times and different seasons, God is going to move upon us with burdens for different nations. And he expects us to respond in kingdom power and authority as an ecclesia. We have to understand the authority we've been given. And when we gather together in one accord, that authority is magnified. You don't understand, some of you, the significance of what just took place when you all stood up and came into agreement over uh, this, this, this spirit of hatred that has been re- unleashed against that nation. Whatever you bind on the earth will be bound in the heavens. Whatever you loose on the earth will be loosed in the heavens. So what was the fruit of these two miraculous manifestations, the tongues of fire and the speaking in tongues and, of course, the the wind of the Holy Spirit? They spilled out into the street. And this, again, is something supernatural. That something of the power that was unleashed within them was so compelling that they had to go out from the place that they were and they didn't care what people thought of them. The people around them thought they were drunk. In Acts 2, verse 5 to 6, says, There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation on earth. earth. Have you ever seen a devout Jew? Have you ever seen how religious Judaism is? It is very, very religious. Very proper. Rituals, by the way, their hair, the the frontlets, all those things... Um, are very, very religious. 
And it says that when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in their own language. So you had Jews from all over the place who had come into Jerusalem for this feast. And all of a sudden, 120 people crazy, crazy with the power of the Holy Spirit spill out into this, into the, into the streets. They look like they're drunk. They're talking in other tongues. And yet the people that are listening are hearing them in their own language. Do you think these sorts of things can happen today? It's happened to me. I want to share a couple of testimonies with you. Uh, And the reason I'm sharing this testimony is not to pump up my own tires. The reason I share testimonies with you is to give God glory and to encourage you that God can do anything through anybody. A few years ago, Kerry and I went to uh, Dilwinia Women's Prison, which is kind of on the way to Richmond. And we were there to do uh, a chapel service at the invitation of the chaplain there, a lovely spirit-filled lady who's retired now, I believe. And uh, when we got there, they had just had an influx of prisoners who were like from Colombia and Peru and places like that. And the reason that they were there was they were drug mules and they'd been busted at Sydney Airport. So you had all these, uh, all these women gathered together, a whole group of them. Uh, some of them spoke English, some of them didn't, some of them only spoke Spanish. And they were all there because they were on importation of cocaine charges and some of them had already been sentenced and they were there for a long time. And uh, so when I got up to speak, um, sorry, before, uh, after, after I had preached, um, I was a bit concerned while I was preaching because I knew that some of these girls uh, did not speak English. And in particular, at the beginning of when uh, I was preaching, I saw this exchange take place between two of the girls. That when I started preaching, one of them was translating for me from English into Spanish to the girl sitting next to her. And after three or four sentences, the girl I saw the girl turn to her and say something to her and then the girl who had been translating shut up for the rest of the message. And it wasn't until afterwards that I found out that the girl who only spoke Spanish had said to the person translating for her, you don't have to translate for me. I can hear what he's saying. I can understand what he's saying, even though I was speaking in English and she did not speak English. This is straight out of here. We should expect the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. And if you put yourself in a position where you are taking the commission to the ends of the earth, I want to tell you, a women's prison is pretty similar to the ends of the earth. You can expect that God's going to show up. See, the power of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is given to us to be witnesses. That doesn't mean that uh, you're all going to be engaged in evangelism 100% of the time. Some of you are intercessors. Some of you are pastors. Some of you, some of you, uh, uh, your, your calling is centered around the next generation within your family that you're raising up in a godly way. But your identity will take you into places you don't expect to be. But you should have the expectation when you get to that place that you don't expect to be and that God's going to show up because he's there with you. He's there in you and he just wants out of the box. It's not so much that we have put God in a box, but it is that we have put ourselves in a box. This is a very square building. It is a box. (laughs) And God wants out. Oh, John, you preach too much on evangelism because you're an evangelist at heart. No. An evangelist's job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Just as it is the pastor's job, the teacher's job, the prophet, the apostle. Equip the saints, the work of ministry. The work of the ministry is in large part, in fact, in total, is evangelistic. If we are not taking territory for the kingdom, which is what Jesus asked us to do, what are we doing? I had a pastor say to me after I joined their worship team, this is way back in the day, 
Oh, John, don't ever feel like you have to do anything else. They were so happy to have a guitar player in the worship team. Say, just play guitar. That's your ministry. And the problem is often that when we come to regard the use of our talents or giftings as our ministry, and then it becomes our identity. And we refuse to step out of what the box that we've created for ourselves to be what God's created us to be. Our talents and giftings must always be submitted below the call that is placed upon you to take territory for the kingdom. I understand that playing in the worship team is part of taking territory for the kingdom. I understand that we enthrone God on our praises in worship. And those, and those people that, that, that play the instruments in our worship team are instrumental, in literally instrumental, in how that takes place, driving back the forces of darkness. But if you restrict yourself to that one little role that you fulfill in the church, you're not getting God's picture for your life because God's picture for your life is that you be a witness to him to the ends of the earth when you get out of the box that you built for yourself or church culture has built for you that's when the Holy Spirit shows up because he wants to demonstrate his power and love to those who don't know him his heart is for those who do not know him it's the reason we, get, we are given the baptism of the Holy Spirit to be Jesus' witnesses even to the ends of the earth. You know, um, I'll share a second testimony with you. And a lot of you will have heard this. Many of you won't. But when I, when I came back to the Lord in 1996 and stepped into church culture and became part of Pentecostal church culture really for the first time, um, Right from the get-go, I sense a, uh, a sense of frustration within me because I could see that the power of God was there in that place to heal and to restore. And, and that particular church was so beautifully called to minister to broken lives. And I never ever want to minimize that aspect of ministry in a gathering of believers. But I saw that outside the walls of, of, of the church culture, there was a whole huge um, percentage of people who were just like I had been, lost in their addictions, broken, um, so desperately needing salvation. And yet I saw that to a great degree, the church wasn't in any effective way reaching out to them. And so I got this invitation from my cousin Amy to go and uh, visit her in Nicaragua. And um, this is only probably three or four years into where, after I got saved. And I wasn't ready, but I went anyway. <laughs> I was immature in the Lord. I was brash. I was arrogant. I thought I could take anything on. But I had a testimony and I went anyway, and God showed up. Let me tell you, I got there, and as soon as I, I you know, they, I know this is back in the days when planes actually went places and stuff, but, you know, when you fly into an airport, you know, the plane lands, and the stewardess opens the door, and you walk out into the, you know, the galleyway or whatever it is that, that takes you into the airport. As soon as I stepped out of the plane onto that galley, into the galleyway that takes you into the airport, I was like, I don't want to be here. I want to be on the next plane home. The atmosphere was so oppressive and so demonic. I was in the capital city of Nicaragua called Managua, and um, I just realized I'm, I'm in way over my head. Uh, my cousin Amy comes to pick me up from the airport and, and she's being very guarded and very careful about which taxi we use and make sure we're not followed and all this sort of stuff. Then we get to the place where she's staying and the walls are like 12 foot high and they've got broken glass bottles on the top of the wall and barbed wire and everything because people will break in and rape and kill and steal and do all sorts of things. And I'm like, what have I got myself into? I was there 
there for uh, just over a week and, and I, I hardly got any sleep at all. I couldn't get my mind to work when I, when I, when I uh, would think about my testimony and, and which, who she was going to ask me to share with. I, this confusion came against me, witchcraft, all these different things that the enemy throws at you and I was completely unprepared for it. And so um, uh, Amy had been doing this for years and... Um, she goes and we, we went and visited a couple of people, sort of in a neighbouring neighbourhood, guys that were ex-gang members and stuff like that. And that kind of went okay. And she said, "Okay, tomorrow, John, we're going to the state prison. And our state prisons in Nicaragua are nothing like they are in Australia. And in this particular state prison um, had a long corridor going down for about 300 metres, and then had like eight wings, four on each side that went out, just like a as if it was a long two-storey dormitory. And each one of those wings was designed for probably uh, 100 people, maybe, to be in those cells. And they they had three, 300, 350 packed into each one of those wings. And um, what I wasn't prepared for in particular was that we had two armed guards with shotguns walking down the main corridor of the prison until we got to the wing where Amy said, we're going to go visit these guys. And so the guy takes out his big keys and he unlocks the door and we go in and we hear the door shut behind us. And I look around and we're there by ourselves and there's like two or three hundred gang members. You know, the guys that you see in the documentaries that are tattooed from head to foot. And they're all in there for murder and extortion and drug dealing and all, all sorts of stuff. And it was the, probably the most demonic atmosphere I've ever experienced in my life. And he's Amy going, come on, we'll go down the end. <laughs> so it goes down the end. It's got like a little rotunda thing at the end where the, the space opens out a little bit. And uh, one of the guys takes my guitar because I've got my guitar with me. And um, we're walking down to the end and I'm terrified. I was totally unprepared, spiritually, emotionally, in any way. I was way out of my league, right? And sometimes that's the best place to be <laughs> because then it's very definitely not about you. And, uh, and so we got down to the end and uh, so, I, you know, I get the guitar out and, you know, put it on and I turn around and there's, I can't remember how many... It looked like thousands, but it was probably somewhere between 80, maybe 100, maybe 150 of these guys are all standing like this. And they're looking at me. And when they look at you like that, it's like it's a challenge. In other words, uh, if I don't like what I hear, you're in trouble. And you multiply that by 75, 80, 150, however many of those guys were there. And, and, and I just went, Jesus, you better make this good because I've got nothing. <laughs> and so I had this, this, this little song um, that Amy translated into Spanish for me, Jesus' Love for Me. We've done it here a few times. And I sang it in Spanish. And as I sang it, the atmosphere began to change in that room. And then I just gave my testimony. I talked about the drugs. I talked about the crime. I talked about the abuse. I talked about all the things that I've been through in my life. And at the end of it, they all gave their lives to Jesus. <laughs> And see, I can't take any credit. The only credit I can take is I was stupid enough to get on the plane in the first place. <laughs> and you, you, you come back from an experience like that, and I'll tell you what, you can't settle for church life anymore. You can't. And as much as I love being pastor of this church, a pastoral outlook for us is no longer enough. We must become apostolic. We must become a gathering of believers who knows what it means to be commissioned by God to take territory. This is what the baptism in the Holy Spirit is supposed to do. I was just reading out of Acts 2 and, you know, they spill out on the street. They look like idiots. They, they look like they're drunk to people. People are hearing them in their own language and, and they're hearing God be glorified. And this Peter, this guy who's a coward, the guy who ran from the servant girl, gets up and he preaches for two minutes and 45 seconds and 3,000 devout Jews come to the Lord. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. He hasn't changed. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. <sighs> P 
Peter said to him, Repent! <laughs> and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You can have all the signs, wonders, deliverance, healings, and all the rest of it, but the purpose that Jesus came for is that your sins could be remitted by people by you putting your faith in Him for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Have a look, you're going to look just as stupid as these guys. <laughs> but stupid in a good way drunk with the power of the Holy Spirit speaking out the praises of God in supernatural languages that you don't understand for the promises to you and to your children we heard it this morning in worship it's to you and your generations and to all who are afar off as many as our Lord will call and so here we have in Acts 1 Acts 2 I've only just scraped the surface in these first two chapters of Acts, we have laid out for us how the church is to be empowered, gathered together with Jesus as the central purpose for which you are gathered. Be in one accord about why we're here. Why are we here? We're here to take territory. Jesus baptizes us in the Holy Spirit and endues his ecclesia with power. You are endued with power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That power is given towards the expansion of the kingdom, which manifests as the taking back of dominion from the enemy. We are to go into the enemy's camp and take back what he stole from us. Out of all those 1,500... Uh, commentaries that I spoke about before. There's one in particular that, that I've read by a man named Peter Wagner, who's one of the kind of pioneers in the modern uh, strategic level spiritual warfare movement. And in his commentary about uh, the book of Acts, he says, a key to understanding the book of Acts and using it as a training manual for ministry today is recognizing that the power of the Holy Spirit that operated in Jesus also operated in the apostles and it can and should operate in us as well. That's the key. Now you say, here I am, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit and I will go and do whatever it is that you ask me to do. So when he told his disciples to wait until they received the promise of the Father, he knew this would be when they began to truly do the works that he did and even greater works. Remember the promise he spoke out in John 14, 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. Oh, what do you mean? Well, you're going to heal the sick. You're going to raise the dead. You're going to cast out demons. You're going to cleanse lepers. Oh, yeah, that's the work of ministry that I'm supposed to help equip you in. Hallelujah. <laughs> Knowledge, training, seminars, programs, technology, sound theology, Christian ethics and morality are all great elements and resources. But God's intent is that the gospel of the kingdom is advanced through the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit who is promised to you and to me. Can we have the worship team up, please? <laughs> and I... Th <laughs> okay. Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, can we do Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. If you're here this morning and you have never stepped into the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues following the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I want to invite you as we begin to worship now, come out the front and our ministry team will pray for you and you will begin to speak in tongues. We have a couple of people over on this side of the church that a few weeks ago were not speaking in tongues, but they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We had a few people over here that got baptized in the Holy Spirit a couple of weeks ago. It is essential that you get baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's essential. <laughs> It's, it's, what, it's what empowers you for the work of ministry that God has for you. If you have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit, then I, I need you to come out the front this morning. We'll pray for you. You'll receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues following. 
And even if you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit before, I want to tell you, you know, one of the things that I've learned about preaching is that you get what you preach. And for the next year, I'm preaching the book of Acts and Ecclesia. <laughs> and that's what we're going to get. We're going to get Ecclesia and we're going to get the book of Acts. And even within three or four months, this place is, is just going to be completely different to how we know it. And I want to tell you, different in a good way, not a bad way. <laughs> Hallelujah. Jesus' desire is that his people, his ecclesia, regain the dominion that was lost in the Garden of Eden. God wants to train us up and teach us how to operate in the things of the Spirit. Teach us how to operate in authority and in power. He wants to empower us as intercessors, as people who pray, as people who fast, as people who preach, as people who minister, as people who bring people out of their brokenness into the wholeness that the gospel has already paid, that Jesus already paid the price for us to have. Let's stand this morning. Holy Spirit, I just want to make you welcome here again, afresh this morning. I pray, Lord, that as we worship you now, as we invite the Holy Spirit to come, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you come, Holy Spirit? Would you come as we worship Jesus? Would you come and baptize in your Holy Spirit? Would you come and release the fire again, Lord, that we so desperately need? Lord, we are not satisfied with where we are. Lord, we want more. You promised that there is more. Lord, we would receive the more that you have for us. Help us, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. There's nothing worth more that will ever come close. You know, there's no rule in this place that you have to remain in your seats. You're if you're going to come forward, just observe some distancing. Holy Spirit, I just invite you to invade the live stream this morning. I invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and move among us now, whether we're physically here in the building or here at home. We thank you, Lord, for the promise. Of the sweetest of when my heart becomes free and my shame is. 